time radio show uh i'm your host john hennigan we're here with my pal uh don kent don what's up not a whole lot i was just playing that record reminded me when i uh met henry townsend uh in washington dc where he came to one of those smithsonian folklore things oh my god uh, he was Tell in, us about that all right he was a neat guy and he had his own he had a, like a little uh side stage um, I don't. I don't know if he was there from Missouri or Mississippi, but I probably from Missouri. And uh, he did a couple songs, and he took a break. And I spoke with him and asked him about guys in St. Louis. And he had really big forearms, like Popeye, you know. Huh. And he what? Bi- he was big. No, he was smaller than me, but he huh. was stocky. Right. And he had this great big scar on one side. I said, "Oh, how'd you get that scar?" And he says, uh, "J.D. shortcut me." <laughs> and I said, why do you do that? And he says, I don't know. <laughs> so there may be some reason. And then I asked him about Clifford Gibson, and he said, yes, you know, he remembered Clifford. And then after that, he went back on the stage, and he did 
a co- he did a Clifford. He did a song just like Clifford Gibson. No the, kidding. No kidding. The intonation, the tone, uh, the notes, just like just like Gibson. In fact, his Victor, one side of his Victor record, which everybody thought was Clifford Gibson, I think it's really him playing like Clifford Gibson uh, because huh. he hit some notes that I've never heard Gibson play. Although it's very much like a Gibson piece in E. Oh wow! Incredible. And you're, and we were just saying there. Uh, it sounds like he's playing an E on that one, even though it's such an unusual way to play an E. Yes, for years everybody thought it was some kind of like you know E tuning. Right, right. Uh, like and an then open E or something. Yeah, the, but I think the whole thing's in E. Uh, Stuart and I were listening to it, and I said, "Gee, that sounds an awful lot," and like it's in straight E, standard E. And he said, "Yeah, you know, I think it is. I just never thought of it that way." Huh. So I think he. A lot of his things he plays in E, and he plays a lot in Spanish too, or he plays some things in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Right, but anyway, he was a good guy. I, he was good friends with Stewart. I met him once uh, again. I met him one other time when he was up in uh, Upper New York State to visit Michael. But he was gone. He was the last of the old timers. He just died yeah. a couple of years ago. I yeah, incredible. Until you said that last night when we were hanging out, I had no idea he was still uh, living. Mm. But he, he he stopped playing completely, or no? He he was playing pretty much uh, till he died. In fact, I think one reason he died at that there was some kind of celebration in Grafton, Wisconsin, uh, about Paramount, and since he was like the last known living Paramount artist, they invited him up there, and I think he was going to play. Uh, he had been playing mostly piano. Uh, since he was rediscovered, or he decided he liked piano better. Hmm. Uh, he did record a couple bluebirds that were him playing piano. He was a good piano player, but he was a much better guitar player. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a great record. Really, really good. So, uh, for those of you who don't know, Don Kent uh, is the uh, founder of the Mamlish label and the Flying Crow label, two mm. of my favorite uh, labels. Uh, Flying Crow, uh, among other things, put out... Uh, Dixon Brothers was on Flying Crow. No, right? they were on Country Turtle. Oh, Country Turtle. That was the third label. Yeah, which didn't go very far. I only had three releases. It was the Dixon Brothers, uh, two volumes of that, right? Yeah, and an anthology. Okay. And uh, Flying Crow, of course, did uh, Major Conte and the Cane Break Rattlers and the uh, Otis Brothers. and uh, The first Otis Brothers. And one of the early comps I found when I was first getting into this stuff was one of your mamlish ones, you know, the Mississippi Sheiks, but all those were great. All those are so good. They were interesting, uh, I thought, compilations. I tried to make them uh, balance out in a way, especially the Sheiks. The Sheiks had such a extensive repertoire and, and s- different styles. I wanted to put a little bit of everything that they did, you know, like white fiddle tunes, uh blues kind of pop songs country things derived from country songs uh and i always thought it was a good record yeah it was a great comp my favorite sheik's comp and and then you worked at uh yazoo and were uh very um influential and all those uh great comps you did uh with richard nevins and yes great liner notes and the liner notes were generally simple liner notes uh I like the liner notes on Mamlish better. They were a little more creative hmm. and a little more extensive because you had a whole LP back to cover. Yeah, yeah, had a lot more space, right? Yeah, more space. 
you could you could actually drone on sometimes. <laughs> but now I always thought it was it was it was good. You could do a lot with a, a, a LP back if you wanted to. And I think uh, I Mamlish actually made a little money towards the end. Not a great deal. It was never like uh, a viable alternative working. Right. But, but you know, once I got once I got the sheiks. It wasn't sort of like a drain on my pocketbook. It was sort of like supported itself. And and the Sheiks and the Lonnie Johnson, I guess, were the two big sellers. Hmm. But all those other all those other comps are great on there too. The uh, uh, the post war one and the one that has like the uh, Hattie Hart and all that stuff. The Memphis yeah. record. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, the post war records. I did two. They both uh, uh, did did much better than some of the other anthologies. Uh, the Mississippi anthology did okay. The Memphis record did okay. Um, Barbecue Bob did good. In fact, the, on- the only one that only sold out, the f- I only pressed a thousand of was Bullfrog Blues, which was William Harris, Buddy oh, Boy yeah, Hawkins. Yeah, yeah. Great. And, jeez, I even forget who else was on there. Now, your, your uh, Barbecue Bob was Chocolate to the Bone. Right. Right. And then and then you also did the uh, the two Ed Bell comps, too. Yes, he was one of my favorite artists. Yeah. I actually did a lot of research on him in the 70s, helped by Ben Dolson, who was doing a lot of stuff in Alabama at the time. In fact, he found the first uh, uh, relative of Ed Bell. And oh, really? Oh. Yeah, uh, the youngest sister... And later on, I found the oldest sister. Hmm. And the people, of course, around there knew him. Um, when I asked uh, his oldest sister if she had any of his records, she said, no, we, we didn't have money for records. If we wanted to go him, we just went across the road and asked him to play. <laughs> Which I guess that makes sense. It does. It does when you're living on a subsistence level for the most part. Yeah. Well, you got another record for us? Yeah. Let's see what we got. Either side. I need that even in the sleeve. I guess. Oh, how do I even pick which side? I guess I'm gonna pick this one. All right, lad. I'm gonna tell you something to brush your fist now. I'm tired of the way you treat me. 
Of course, Daddy Stovepipe and his wife, Mississippi Sarah. I was, he was still alive when I got in, when I started going down to Maxwell Street. Yeah, you ran into him. Oh yeah, I saw him a couple times. Wow. Uh, he was out there. He had the the black tall hat, stovepipe hat, like Abe Lincoln used to wear. Yeah, there's some photos of him. But uh, he only played he only played two songs. He played the Tennessee Waltz and um, Sundown Blues, which he called. Toot your whistle, blow your ha- horn, your nappy head daddy's got your water on. Huh. And those were the only two he played. Uh, you asked him about some other things and... He couldn't remember them? He or? couldn't remember them. I, I, you should have brought the records down. And you Yeah, know. well, how was I going to bring the <laughs> records down? Uh, and I was kind of surprised because uh, they were all in G. Everything I did, I think, was in G, except I don't know if he did Tennessee Waltz in C or not. I don't remember. Huh. But uh, yeah, he was a you know a fixture on on Maxwell Street for many many decades, as far as I could tell. Yeah, yeah, incredible. But um, well, it's too bad he you know passed before he got you know more recording done. Oh yeah, you mean in the in the sixties? Well, even even uh, earlier, but even in the sixties, uh, he might have been recorded. Uh, by some English guys. I can't remember if I, if he was on some real early English blues record. Hmm. Might have been. I can't, but I can't remember now. And well, tell us who else you ran into, uh, run into anybody else on Maxwell Street was still around? Sure, I used to see guys playing out there a lot. Uh, when I started going out there, oh, this guy, Blind James Brewer, uh-huh. uh, uh, he was from around Jackson, Mississippi, did some Tommy Johnson stuff. But he was out there every Sunday with a, uh, a Pentecostal church, hmm. and you might have seen that some Maxwell Street footage of that woman who was dancing. Sure. Uh, they were out there every week, and they were a sight to see. They, they, the singing, and the, they just went on. They went on almost like nonstop. They did like 15-minute sets, you know, just, and you could see that, that black woman who just, just sweat. <laughs> and also, um, Robert Nighthawk, at that time, was playing on Maxwell Street. Wow, that must have been something. Oh, yeah. He he had a long extension cord so he could plug into a second-story window so to play. And sometimes he had uh, a drummer with him named Porkchop. 
and sometimes um, uh, Johnny Young on mandolin. Oh wow! And then they huh. played out there for tips, so they they didn't do bad. Yeah, you know, wasn't like doing a gig, I guess, but it was money. So you saw the you saw the Chicken Man out there. Uh yeah, I saw the Chicken Man out there. And how was his whole like? Did he have a whole act? I mean, it's it's hard to tell from the little bit of footage they have. No, that was pretty no, much what he, he just did. That I remember. Chicken. Yeah. Um, I saw John Rencher. John Rencher, I don't know if you know, he is a harmonica, one-armed harmonica player. Sure. He was out there a lot, uh, also with other guys, you know, with a, with a little band. And what was that that blonde guy's name who played the National? Oh, uh, Arvella John Gray. Henry. Arvella Gray, yeah. He was out there, too. He was out there almost every Sunday. Of course, he also played in front of Jazz Record Shop a lot on uh, West Grand, when they were on West Grand. Oh, yeah. Seven yeah. West Grand. He... He'd like come out there, you know, on a Friday, which was usually heavy tra- heavy foot traffic, and he'd be out there, you know, playing John Henry and sometimes other songs. So this is the same time that like Big Joe and Sleepy John Estes were, yeah, around. Yeah, but those guys weren't playing on the street. No, no, uh, Big Joe, I don't think played on the street. Uh, not not any time that I knew him, hmm. and I don't know. John probably didn't play on the street once he got recorded. You know, I don't know what he did in Brownsville. He might have played out on the street in Brownsville. Everybody in Brownsville knew him. Hmm. So maybe it wasn't such a big thing for him playing out in the streets there. Uh, but the, the main... Uh, Arvella Gray was like the only street singer I d- knew who did it, like, as a, you know, That's a vocation. What, right, right. And uh, other, you know, other musicians who didn't have regular gigs, like, well, like Nighthawk or... Um, John Rencher would be out sometimes on a Sunday just picking up change. You know, they could they could make fifty dollars on a if they are you know like working from like eight to two or something like that. It's not bad. No, it's not bad. And you can in get the, up at eight o'clock on a on Sunday. a Sunday. Yeah, if you didn't, well, if you didn't have a gig or you know Saturday night or even if you did, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, fifty bucks is. Yeah, it's you know it, it wouldn't be bad to 60s. make on the street now. You know? No, no, fifty bucks that was had to be pretty good. Yeah, it was like it was worth as worth as much money as a regular you know gig, a gig in a right? tavern. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure. But there were you know, I wish I had taken uh, a little more trouble to look for old musicians in Chicago rather than just running into them. Did you did you find anybody in Chicago? I didn't. Uh, Michael Stewart found Little Myrtle Jenkins, a piano player hmm. for Bumblebee Slim. Uh, he also uh, this guy Peter Brown uh, went canvassing on uh, off of Maxwell Street and found Arthur Pettis. Hmm. Uh, Incredible. Hmm. Incredible. Yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, Arthur Pettis. Managed to get shot in the arm and shattered his bones. He couldn't play guitar anymore. Uh. Just before whiskey became illegal, because he worked, uh, as, you know, like as a bootlegger when right, he wasn't right. playing, which is, you know, what a shame. Yeah, yeah. So he never recorded after the those few th- things in the '30s. I don't think he could. Did Did you have much contact with uh, Estes? Not a whole lot. I talked to him some when. Um, when he was in to do recording, he sometimes, he I think he had kinfolk. Uh, his brother Sam lived not far, I mean, lived and knew where the jazz record shop was, so I think he brought him around. I did talk to uh, uh, Estes about Sun Bonds, uh, 
who I liked and wanted to know more about, and I found out and, he... And Estes backed him up on some decas, right? Well, yeah, yeah, he backed him up. Actually, might have been Charlie Pickett backing him up. Bonds backed up Estes, and I get, yeah, they backed up each other on okay. the Bluebirds. Right, 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 okay. Um, and I think Charlie Pickett was on most of the decas, but Bonds probably too. Anyway, I asked him about Bonds, and I heard that Bonds got killed in 1946 uh, by accident in a way. Some guy was looking for uh, somebody who was fooling with his wife and he thought it was Son Bonds and went over and shot him in the head. Yeah. But it was a mistake. It wasn't Son Bonds. It's kind of <laughs> like a mistake you can't really apologize for. Say, no. Hey, I'm sorry. No, it was... Uh, <laughs> no going back and there's no going back and that's that that's unfortunate because i liked him too i thought he was a good singer um and not a bad guitar player well maybe i'll play a estes record uh since that'd we're be great about him. Tell me what to do. Let me see the album get quaint with you. Well, you won't have to go. Well, you won't have to go. You can get what you want, huh? right here in my liquor store. You got a little whiskey, you got a little gin. All you got to do is step in the back end. Well, you won't have to go. Well, you won't have to go. You can get what you want, huh? right here in my liquor store. I met Mr. Peter down on Monroe Street. Come to Fox City, round around with me. Well, you won't have to go. Well, you won't have to go. You can get what you want. I'm right here in my little store. You got some on the floor. You got some on the shelf. All you got to do is just to help yourself. Well, you won't have to go. Well, you won't have to go. You can get what you want, I'm right here in my little store. Miss Peter Adam, this kind of man, you're asking for a favor, you won't make you shame, well, you won't have to go. Well, you won't have to go. You can get what you want, all right, yeah, my little store. That's very fast for an Estes record. Yeah, yeah, it's unusual, right? Yeah, yeah, it's quite, uh, hadn't heard that for a while. Let me ask you a question. You, do, you, you don't know what the meaning of need more is, do you? You know, Estes has need more blues. He says need more done harm to many men. And no, then there was I don't. Bobby Leakin's need more band. 
just an expression? I think it's just an expression, and it might mean something like, need more sex. Hmm. Uh, well, we can all relate to that. Yeah, uh, but I, I, that's one that I, that I never really followed up on. I could have asked. Uh, I did ask Yank Rachel what dry long soul means. Which means just, just you know, chill out basically. Huh. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing you can do just to take it as it comes. I guess you know. What What was Yank like? Did you hang around with him quite a bit? Yeah, yeah. Yank was uh, a lot of fun. He was certainly. Um, yeah, because in, in the Louis Bluey, the only time I've ever seen him speak, he seems like a really funny guy. Oh, he is. Show enough, as he used to say. He used <laughs> to say that all the time. Show enough, especially if he, you know. I realized that he usually he'd say that if he wasn't quite sure if to take you seriously or not he'd say show sure enough. <laughs> but I also think he got and that was just his phrase. Yeah, he was good. He was um g- probably the best blues mandolin player oh, ex- yeah. possibly excepting Charlie McCoy. Totally different style. Yeah, so. different style. Yank was real blues, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah well that's that's pretty much all he played. And, he used, to, he used to do the things like, you know, flip the mandolin around, you know, he'd strum and then turn it over so it would make 360. <laughs> uh, he, was, he was neat. He was a neat guy. I talked with him, and I saw him play a lot because uh, he usually played. When Estes came up, they usually tried to find jobs for him and Yank, you know, while they were there, so uh, they'd have some extra money. So I, I saw him. Uh, a lot, and I, I liked him very much. He was—he mm. certainly was somebody. But you could interact with him much more than Sleepy John. John sometimes you couldn't even tell if he was asleep. Sometimes he—he he wasn't that. Was responsive. he really like a, a narcoleptic, like they said? Like he was uh, always asleep, or he was just? Well, that's the stories that they told said about him. They say he'd be sleeping, then he'd just get up and start singing. Right. right. Um, but he was not like. I guess partially because he was blind, but he wasn't very, like... Outgoing. Well, he wasn't terribly outgoing. No. Yeah, yeah. No, Yank was very outgoing. Uh, Big Joe was very outgoing. Uh, John just sort of sat back. He'd answer questions. went In monosyllables, if you asked him if he could, sometimes he'd, he'd give a bigger explanation of if you asked him something, like he told me about the uh, Sun Bonds thing. But most of the time, you'd just say yes or no. Uh, it didn't seem to take a lot of this uh, adulation he got from blues fans at the time terribly seriously. Mm-hmm. I sometimes think he was kind of like mocking them in a way, because he didn't, you know, he knew he was a, a you know a musician and a good storyteller and a good singer, but big deal, right, you know. Right, right. I mean. There were a lot of guys like that in, in Brownsville when he was young. Right, right. Uh, like Willie Newburn, who we learned from, hmm. who was a, uh, a real first-generation guy, I guess. He, Newburn was born in 1895. And Do you have all the Newburn records? I have all but one. <laughs> well, there's only three, so. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, Roland Tumble, and I have uh, Dreamy-Eyed Woman. I have the other one. Yes, so you do. We can have a we can have a party. There's someday we can we can have we can play <laughs> the complete together. collection of, of Willie Newburn. Yeah. So uh, I, I want to ask you about your um, early days of collecting. Mm-hmm. You know, you're one of my uh, hero collectors, right? 
as as I'm sure you feel the same way when people talked about Sleepy John Estes about being a great blues singer. You probably think, man, this kid's crazy. No, but he was a great wanna, blues singer. Yeah, well, you're a great collector, so I, I want to know how it how it all started. So, when did you first? I mean, I assume you started out listening to more modern blues and worked your way back. Is that true? Yeah, actually, I started listening. My brothers started listening to uh, black radio stations in the like middle 50s he started listening I remember getting up in the morning and he would be playing the magnificent Montague before he went to school hmm. I don't know if you know who that he was a very famous DJ no was in I Chicago don't know that at that time and and what they, kind of stuff did they play they played mostly R&B you know groups uh, Ray Charles was uh, doo-wop happening then, oh or? doo-wop was big in Chicago yeah, yeah. I mean you had chess you had a VJ VJ was a big doo-wop label right uh, Jimmy Reed they'd sometimes play uh, and I was fortunate that my father worked nights my mother was uh, let us stay up until our father came home uh, and my my brother used to listen to this guy Sam Evans he had a, a program called jam with Sam from 9 to 12. And from 9 to 11, he played doo-wops and the regular, you know, R&B hits. And 11 o'clock, that section opened with little Walter's blue lights. And he says, I'm going to go deep down in the sub-basement and put on nothing but a soft blue light. And then he'd play blues all hour. That'd be Muddy Waters, Lightning Slim, Hopkins, John Lee Hooker, little Walter. You know, all the guys who were active at that point. J.B. Lenore. And... I really liked that stuff. It, you know, it was certainly head and shoulders over uh, the white pop music. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> rock and roll was just starting to come in, uh, like Fats Domino and Little Richard. But when, I remember when I heard uh, Light and Slim's My Starter Won't Start This Morning, I thought that was a much more real song than, like, Primrose Lane by Jerry Vale, you know, which was very kind of soppy, Un- soppy Uncomparable. Song. And then um, uh, I started buying records about 1957, 45. So how, how old were you then? Uh, I was about 13, 14. 13, 14. And what are you buying from 45? Well, Just uh, the chess and all that stuff? Yeah, chess and BJ. In fact, I had to go like about five miles to the biggest record shop in the area uh, who had, like, you know, at that time, the the black songs that were getting airplane white radio, but they could, they would order things that normally, like, they'd order chess and VJs for me, and uh, even labels like Cobra, things that you couldn't get at any, you know, most record stores, because who wanted them? Right, right. Yeah, and I, had, I and, like, a couple friends were, you know, pretty much interested in, uh, in that stuff. So I had a, a fair size collection, and then... Uh, I started collecting 78s about 1959. Do you remember the first one you got? I don't remember the first one I got because we did have 78s then. Uh, my brother had bought 78s when he couldn't got 45, but I remember... It, the it wasn't a big deal because they were just everywhere. Yeah, in fact, I went downtown to this place called Rose Record Shop to see if they had any new blues, and they had thousands of 78s in shelves, and uh, it was some big distributor had gone out of business or maybe a bunch of, maybe it was even their own stock and I pulled out uh, Babyface Leroy's My Head Can't Rest Anymore <laughs> and I was on chess and it was like very early and I 
hadn't seen it, so I bought it, and I bought a couple other things that I found, like maybe an Elmore James, and, you know, they had a lot, it, it was sort of like really sifting through them to get uh, the black records, because 90%, of course, was like white pop. <laughs> and then uh, in 1959, uh, my mother brought me for Christmas the country blues, because she knew I was interested in it. She uh, bought you the country blues? Yeah, it had just come out. She had read a review of it, so she went out and got it for me. She thought I would like it. The book you're talking the about? The book, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. It came out, I think, just at the end of 1959. And I read it, and that got me interested. Uh, all these people I didn't know about, like Tampa Red and Lonnie Johnson. You know, I, I knew about Lightning Hopkins. So what was the first uh, country blues record you got? Well, you it was remember? probably... Uh, Probably a big boy crude up. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. I mean, you know, it might have been. It was close to my first too. Yeah, my first was Memphis Mini, and then I think I got a big boy crude up. <laughs> uh, actually, you could still buy those right off the shelf. Those late bluebirds, no kidding. Bluebirds, no bluebirds. Huh? Yeah, bluebirds. You'd go downtown to Little L's, which was a big chain then, uh, and they had them on the shelf. You just ask them, you know. What have you got? And they got pull out. You know, they had like Roosevelt Sykes and Sonny Boy Williamson and hmm. stuff like that. And then I went down. The first time I went down to Maxwell Street was not much after I read the book. I was about sixteen then. It was a big deal to go down to the South Side. And I stopped at this. There's besides well Maxwell Street Radio. Uh, there was a big record store there called Dirks, hmm. which w had been in business you know, since the since the thirties, and they had stocks of you know all kinds of they had they had all the RCA Victors I think every RCA Blues Victor they had boxes of like twenty five count boxes you know wow. maybe not all the same thing but they had like a twenty five count box of like two or three Sonny Bar Williamsons then they had another box that had maybe you know, five copies each of uh, Sonny Land Slim or Dr. Clayton's Buddies. You know, they had they had stuff in depth, but they had all the small labels too, like uh, Random and Job and the uh, Parkway. And so I, you know, I started going there and spent throwing my money away there. <laughs> and I went to Maxwell Street Radio, and the first time I went there, I they had a table so, a little bigger than this, maybe. 50%, well, almost 50% bigger, and it had stacks of gold stars, huh. all by Lightning Hopkins, but only three different numbers. Huh. They had like about 200 copies of Automobile Blues, which was a big hit for Hopkins. They had like maybe uh, uh, 75 copies of uh, um, Automobile, of, no, what was it? mad with you and they had a few copies they had like one stack maybe 20 copies of um ain't it a shame and i think they they might even had a copy of tim moore's far but no i think i got that later so i bought one and they were 75 cents a piece because the guy wanted to get rid of them and i'm sorry i didn't have enough money to buy them all but i also bought and i said when i bought them i took them over to the guy uh, bernie abrams who ran maxwell radio and he said oh you like blues and I said, yeah. And he says, well, I got Little Walter's first record, which is on his label, Orin now, and Johnny Young's only 70. No, Johnny Young's first record, 
which is on there also. So I bought them. And he had boxes of those. He had like several hundred copies of each. This was in 1960. I don't know what happened to them all. I think a lot of them went overseas. And then um, in 1962, I think, was it 60? No, it was 1963. Um, Bob Kester had moved up to um, Chicago from St. Louis. He was looking for a, a better, a bigger place to sell records and jazz records and stuff. And I looked in the uh, phone book and I saw him at that at that time I started to look at phone you know look at where record stores were in the phone book and going out to see if I could get you know 78s if they still had old 78s and so I went over that I went over to they had there was a little ad for jazz records mark and it was on Wabash Avenue it was before I moved to Grand so I went there and I uh, walked in and you know, a lot of LPs and all that and I didn't see there was like one box of 78s on the counter and the first record I looked at was uh, Awful Moaning Blues by Texas Alexander, New mm. Condition, and wow. he had $12 on it. Wow. And I said... That's a lot for that's, back then. Yeah, I said, $12. I said, Jesus. that's a lot of money. I couldn't imagine paying $12 for a record. And because I, you know, what was that? Well, I was making, what, minimum wage, uh, part-time job, bucket a half an hour. I think is that what it was then. Yeah. It might even only been a dollar an hour. No, I think it was a buck and a half. But I thought that was an you know outrageous amount of money for a record. I mean, what what was lunch back then? Oh, buck. I mean, yeah, but yeah. was a buck. Okay. I mean, it was a, a lunch, not a fast, not fast food. Okay, so back then he's trying to sell Texas Texas Alexander for a hundred bucks, something the equivalent of oh, probably now like about hundred fifty bucks. That seems crazy for back then. right? Well, it was, but it was a good record. Oh yeah, and it was brand new. Must look like it came from a stock. But I thought it was crazy. Anyway, uh, so I met him. Kester was always, you know, liked to meet people. was very gregarious. And he said, this was in the summer, he said, well, why don't you come by sometime? He says, on, he says, on, on Friday and Saturday night, we, uh, he says, sometimes we have, I have people over and we listen to old records from my collection. Oh. So I said, well, okay, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that. So Paul Guerin was working for him that year and getting all his good records. <laughs> no, but he, he got a lot of records from, from Bob. And so I went there to listen to records, and there were two records I heard there that just was a complete sea change for me. I mean, I love post-war blues, and I still continue to buy them for the next three or four or five years. Uh, but they sort of like became very secondary. Uh, Two of the records he played, one was uh, Shine on Moon by Kokomo Arnold, mm -hmm. which was his only finger-picked record. And it's a beautiful record. It's uh, The melody is Crow Jane or Sliding oh, Delta. Yeah. And Blind Willie McTell's Mama Tain Long for a Day, which wow. was just, I had never heard anything get much like better it. Than that. No, no, <laughs> that, that was astonishing. So I came came back. Because I, you know, by that time I had heard Tam the later Tampa Reds and Sonny Williamson, and they were good, but they were, they were much more connected to Chicago blues yeah, than yeah. anything I heard. That was the beginning of that whole yeah, sound. Yeah, it, right? it was sort of the beginning of that. And I decided right then I said I'm gonna, you know, I went back to see Bob and I said, well, how how do you get these records? And he says, well, I'm gonna be selling my collection to pay for you know, to develop my my record label. He said, but 
these are guys that I know sell records. And one of them was John Sadowski, who was living in Florida, sent out periodic auction lists. And gradually I got in touch with a lot of blues and jazz collectors, including the New York Mafia, which at that time consisted of uh, Pete Whalen, Bernie Clasco, and James McCune, who were sort of like the, who dealt with the really, really rare and early blues, country blues records. Everybody called them country blues then. And so I've, I managed to maintain a you know correspondence with them. So do you remember like what the first record you won off the auction list was? Mm, no. Right, well, let me ask you another question. But I remember records that, that I won. Uh, well, I, it, very early. Um, yeah, like what? Okay, I, I won um, Southern Can Mama by Van Willie McTell. Ah, it's so good. And, and uh, the OK Sproul, Mr. Freddie, uh, Muddy Water Blues, and Way Back Down Home. Really? Yeah, wow. from John Sadowski. I paid. Those were the two most expensive records I, I bought at the time. I was fortunate, my, or in some ways, is my grandfather died, and I got $1,500, of which two-thirds of it went for record, and the other rest of the money just went for pissing away <laughs> women, you know, and, and which I was interested in also at the time. Uh, and he sent out lists, because he was, he was in Jacksonville going door to door and came up with great records and they were not they were not that expensive but they were ex somewhat so expensive. what are we talking about so our listeners can get an idea oh well how, how they were all born way too late well okay well like mint columbia's uh up until about 1969 i usually paid between uh eight and ten dollars for any columbia in good shape almost any columbia I mean, Barbecue uh, Bob, um, Charlie Lincoln, Blind, Blind Willie Johnson, Pedelec Howell. Because there wasn't that much competition. And the guys who did collect blues, for the most part, they weren't in demand, so you could get them even for a couple bucks. Wow. I mean, if nobody else, you know, wanted them. Sheiks, stuff like that. Yeah, Sheik. I bought Sheiks. I, you know, I, I don't think I ever, until, like, for the first five years of collecting pre-war stuff, I probably didn't pay over $8 for any Sheiks. And six dollars for bluebirds. Wow! And they were, you know, there were stocks were being sold, and early collectors, you know, the early collectors who had blues records, they were starting to get rid of their collections. Then, so it was it was a really good time, and the records weren't considered that valuable, except for like, I remember, uh, well, Kester had a kid, Bailey. Oh wow! And already that was already that was that was a hot record, you know. And uh, and do you think we've had this discussion before? But you you think that's Willie Brown with Patton on the second guitar? Uh, I'm. It's absolutely definitely Patton on second guitar. I, I, I agree and with I, you a thousand percent. And I think there's nobody else that could be on the second guitar. No, it's exact the exact same arrangement he does with Henry Sims, note for note almost. It's like yeah. that's what he does. You can hear the tone of the guitar. Yeah, just and the, the way the, he plays in the ease. touch. Yeah, it's yeah. the touch. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's probably 99% or 95%, I'll even go, that it's Willie Brown. And I think that's his normal voice. Which, and I think he uses that false growl that Patton uses. You right, hear Patton, right. If you hear Patton sing Jim Lee, 
he does this the first three verses in his natural voice right, like before he higher. drops into a growl right. it's like he's remembering what one of, it must have been one of his early songs that he knew because he didn't play it you know and it was like at his last almost no it wasn't his last session but he didn't it was sort of like he was digging for material right right and he starts out singing his natural voice before he remembers oh that's not my he drops into the ground to your blues voice into the blues voice yeah so and it's it's you know sliding delta is probably one of the earliest uh blues melodies that everybody knew around you know after the turn of the century right so yeah i, th- I think it's it's him i think if he hits you can tell the difference between like when blind willie johnson singing in his growl his you know false uh bass and then when he sings normally his voice is several tones higher right right uh so i i'm i'm I would bet a dime to a dollar that that <laughs> is Louie Brown. I think you were about to tell us what that kid Billy sold for. That was like a lot okay. of money. Okay, this was like I think his the first auction he had. He put on a bunch of good records, and the auction at the kid Bailey went to Bernie Classico for thirty five dollars. And that was like a fortune back. That then. was a fortune. In fact, on the last next list, Kester says thirty five dollars, my own personal high for a blues record. Wow! Like as far as he knew, no one ever paid that much money for, for a blues record. Wow! And incredible. it's quite possible because blues records, you know, weren't jazz collectors. They they just picked them up if they were cheap. They probably didn't really play them. They used them for trading material. All right. Well, play us another record, and then I want to uh, hear about you uh, canvassing door to door. Okay.
Listeners out there, can get the, in and talk about these records. What we have the piano player is R.D. Norwood, and he does a really good job staying behind uh, Jaybird, who's kind of free He's with his meter. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he 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 does a good job. He stays very very loose. Oh, he plays great. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I wanted to ask you, you know, about getting records. You know, like what you know, collectors from my generation like romanticize about is. Uh, you know the guys who were able to go door to door and find these records, and uh, so what? What was that like for you when you started doing that? Scary when I first started out. Yeah, because <laughs> it was sort of like you know there were all kind. There was a lot of tensions if you went down south. Uh, tensions between whites and blacks, or tensions between whites and whites. Like well, both. Yeah. Uh, less tensions between probably whites and blacks because the blacks who were there were pretty much had to stay there and they had to, you know, generally be nice, but not always. But uh, the white police sometimes were, were, could be scary. I didn't have... What, they were afraid that what you were going down there and trying to talk to people about their rights. Yeah, and getting them to vote and all that. Uh, right, right. I was in Mississippi and I was going to look for Joe Calicut, but the... Uh, the police in Hernando were following us around. We, I just got psyched. I said, "No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to deal with this." But for the most part, it was actually people were very nice when you were canvassing. When I was canvassing, going door to door, I, I, it was also scary in a way. I had to sort of psych myself up because I felt a little foolish. Here I was looking for old records. You know, and you just had to go cold like you were selling something, but I was buying something. <laughs> right, right. Um, like, not what people were expecting. I'm no, sure, right? no, they weren't expecting to open and find this you know, young white man asking for old blues records. Yeah. Uh, must and have, they must have thought there was some scam or you were crazy. Or well, probably both. Well, they, well, no, usually a lot of times I got, are you, you must be the record man. <laughs> I had no idea what this. I said, "Yeah, I'm the record." Oh, you're gonna make them over again? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna make them over again. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that—that's what they thought. Uh, a lot of people thought that. Some of them just, you know, oh, okay. M- one of my favorite canvassing stories in 1969. Um, I was in Memphis for they had a blues festival there, run by uh, a bunch of people, um, some of whom later became famous. And Bill Barth, who was a guitar player, worked with a band called the Insect Trust. But I was there, and I, I saw some of the blues guys, and then they came to the rock section where there were um, local rock and roll bands, which I wasn't too interested in at that point. So I thought, well, uh, this was in, uh, ooh, I forget the, 
the name it was in that big park that they have so I said well I'll just take a little time and go canvassing because it wasn't far from the black area so I you know drove drove a little bit to this black section that looked like moderately prosperous lower middle class you know and started knocking on doors and after a couple houses I got a, you know like a Walter Davis and Memphis Slim Bluebird stuff like that it was on Lyon Street in case anybody in Memphis ever hears this and knows where Lyon Street is, if it's still there. And I came to this one house, and uh, this woman answered the door, and I said, do you have any old, you know, 78s? And I had a 78 that I showed her. She said, oh, yeah, I got a bunch of those under the porch. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. I said, could I see them? I'm buying them. She said, well, what do you give for them? I said, well, usually about a dollar a piece, you know. She said, oh, okay. You know, because obviously she had them on the porch. She wasn't doing very much with them. Right, right. So she went and came. Dollar piece was pretty good, right? Dollar piece was real good. Most people probably spent, what, like 50, 75 cents on them to begin with? Well, yeah, but 75 cents in the 20s was a lot of money. That was a day's pay. Okay, right, right. Yeah, So, I mean, but but these were, I'm looking for used records. Right. You know, and they, from like 30 years, yeah, 30. It's at least 30 or 40 years earlier. So she came back. With a good size stack, you know, as much as I guess she could carry. Uh, and I'm going through them, and there's the things you usually see, like Sarah Martin, Bessie Smith, Edith Wilson, you know, um, a lot of female singers. <coughs> and there were maybe a couple, uh, you know, blues records that weren't super, but they were there. And finally, I come, there's, there's Pony Blues by Charlie Patton. Mm-hmm. And it stopped me dead in my tracks because, no. Uh, it was the first time I ever found a, uh, a patent junking. Right. And so I put it aside along with a small batch of records I had that were in, you know, in decent shape. And so I said, okay, I'd like to buy these. She said, well, let me look at them. She said, I want to see, see them before I, before <laughs> I sell them. Not, that's never a good sign. Never. No, no, no. So she's looking and she's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you can have that, you can have that. And then she comes to Pony Blues. She says, Pony Blues? Oh, you can't have the pony blues. I used to dance to the pony blues. I wouldn't sell pony blues for five dollars. And I says to her, "Would you take six? <laughs> okay." <laughs> so, so it wasn't my first patent, but it was my cheapest patent, or oh, my second cheapest patent. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times when you're canvassing, you've just found great broken records. Oh, I remember I once imagine. in Virginia, this lady brought out a box, you know, one of those carry boxes. Yeah. And I'm pulling out records, and I pulled out one halfway, and it was uh, like an E-plus copy of uh, I Woke Up This Morning With My Mind On Jesus. Oh. And I pulled the rest of it out. There was like only a half inch left, <laughs> you know. I mean, there was a big chunk missing, which is why it was still E-plus. They must have broke it early. Right, so right. I put it back. But you found, I found some decent records junking. It was just always more like the, you know, what am I going to get? You know, you, you never I mean, knew. What, what was it like? Did you find something every time you went out, even if it wasn't, like, great? Or I mean, how many records were there out there? How hard was it to get? It wasn't hard at all, even in the, uh, well, see, I didn't start late. I started, like, in the late 60s. I remember I went to uh, Lynchburg, which had supposedly been canvassed by Charlie Hubert, John Fahey, and Dick Spotswood. Right. 
in two blocks, I had as many records as I could carry. Oh my and I was paying like 50 cents a piece. Now, of course, most of them were female blues singers, but there was like Lonnie Johnson, Blind Willie Johnson, you know, big all the bigger names, you know. But it was like, you know, if I had gotten any more, I would have been, you know, <laughs> even though I was young, I would have been, they get heavy. Yeah. And I must have had like about, well, however many records this is, well, maybe even more, but it was a lot of records. Uh, like every other house had something almost. Wow. Uh, incredible. It, then it was incredible. Incredible. But that I never had quite that good luck. I don't think again. Um, in Alabama, once I knocked on the door, and guy guy was on the Chelsea Guy on Records, and he calls his little kid. He says, you know, "Joseph, come here." He says, "Get them old records." The kid comes back, he got like a small stack of records, you know. And uh, he says, what do you pay for them? I said, dollar piece. Okay. I'm looking at Ray Charles, yeah. uh, the Clovers. Uh, That's the stuff I look through today. Sam Collins. Oh! Freddie Spruill. Oh! Henry Thomas. Oh! <laughs> but that was it. You know, it was a small batch. Oh, I, that was it. Just that those was just three, Those huh? three. Yeah. Jeez. But and they were all you know worn, but I bought them anyway. Yeah, it was only three bucks. On, yeah. Oh, what a country! It is. It's it's. But it sort of played out when I used to go canvassing. I used to go like every month. Every month I'd go downstairs. I developed a network of a kind of. I there were dealers who knew after I'd been down there like ten times. You had some like contacts. I had some contacts, and if they got some records at that time, I started get buying country records too in the seventies. And then whatever they got new, they'd hold for me. Put you them probably aside. could have cleaned up with country records back then, right? Well, uh, well his, this is what happened with country records. Tony Russell uh, asked me, he says, if you're going, you know, going down south, he says, would you pick up country records for me? And I'll, uh, I'll be happy to pay you. I don't care, you know, whatever you get. And I'd see country records all the time. I wasn't, you know, terribly interested in them. Um, this was in, I think, early, very early 70s, maybe 70, 71. I think he was just starting to get, uh, starting to do the country discography. So I'd go down, if I found country records, and they were like a quarter, 50 cents, which a lot of places they were, I'd pick them up, especially vintage stuff. Do you remember, like, what you were getting? Did you get anything amazing? Uh, I didn't get anything amazing then. I did get, when I started collecting for myself, I found a couple amazing records. Yeah, like, what'd you get? Uh, well, I got Kino the Rent Man, uh, okay, the late Kino one. Kino the Rent Man. Yeah, Kino the other, and I got the uh, Spanish Fandango, on oh, okay wow. by, uh, you know, not in great shape. And I wound up trading almost all the good records to Frank Mayer once I met him. And what and what did you trade for blues? Yeah, blues. I I got some good records from him. I got a a late yeah. Joe Taggart. It's wow. got a little uh, a dig in it. A Paramount once. Uh, what is it? Satan, your kingdom must come down. Hmm. I traded him like maybe two country records, you know, that were beat. And this, was, but because he knew, he knew how rare it was, and I traded him. I traded him a great record for a great record. Uh, I traded him uh, Saturday Night Stroll by Jimmy Davis on Montgomery Ward for Louis Lasky. What? Yeah. Well, oh Saturday Night Stroll had Oscar Woods on it. And oh yeah, but come on, man. 
but it was a good trade. I mean, it's I, a good trade for you. Yeah, I, I remember. You don't know how good that Oscar Woods record was. Well, I love all those records. I yeah. just want to say, you know, I'm a huge yeah. country collector, and I love those Jimmy Davis with Oscar Woods. I mean, they're they're phenomenal. That was and, a, and some of them are tough. That that one's tough, I'm sure, right? I think it's a twenty-three seven. Or yeah, something. so forget it. But, but I knew I'd never see it again. But I didn't think but I'd. Lewis Lasky. Lewis Lasky, yeah. How, how you want your rolling down? Yeah. Oh my God. It's the other side that's better. Are you kidding me? You're no, you don't me know the other the side's other. better? What's oh, yeah. the other side? Uh, what is it? Oh, Tease uh, and Browskin. She got hair like Gloria Swanson. And she looks just like I Priscilla don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'll remind me. I'll bring it next time. Oh, my God. Oh, it's, 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 it's almost the same as how you are rolling now, down. Now, what did he do? Two records? He did that one record by himself. Oh, he, and he played very early on a Paramount. Yeah, what's that one that uh, is my absolute favorite, you know? Oh, Caroline or something. Yeah. yeah. What no. is that? Just a test? That's a test. Doesn't oh exist. It never, never issued. That's incredible. Yeah. I like that. That's one of Sherwin's favorite records. Sherman That's incredible. It's such a great song. It is. It's a nice song. It's but, I mean, but I mean, how you want it done? You're telling me the other side is better than that. I like the other side better. Wow. I gotta hear it. Yeah. No. No. I didn't know you didn't know it. I would have brought, would have brought it before. Okay, this. Don. Well, I hate, I hate to tell you this, but uh, we've come to the end of this episode of the Old Time Radio Show. Oh, and um, I want to thank you so much for doing it. And uh, I we're not through your record box. Maybe we could do another show. We'll do. Yeah. Okay. I can bring up some more records too. It's a small record box. If you want to end with a record. Yes, I would. I would like to end with a record. Okay. Try. And this this is about record collecting. This this song. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? No, you are not wrong. And this is uh, one of my favorite early bands that doesn't get a lot of, uh, well, a lot of the... A lot of respect. A lot of respect. No, they but don't. it's great. But they're, they're a great band. Everybody's selling it. Everybody's buying it. Can't get enough of that stuff. Some like it weak. Some like it strong. Stuff is what they want, right or wrong. Big in the hog over the Lord Stuff made the pig holler like a dog The more you get, the more you want You can't get enough of that stuff I mean, you can't get enough of that stuff Well, I'm wild about that stuff Everybody's selling it, everybody's buying it. You can't get enough of that stuff. Some like it weak, some like it strong. Stuff is what they want, right or wrong. Some of it's cheap, some hide your hat. You can buy it at most any old flat. The more you get, the more you want. You can't get enough of that stuff. No, I mean, you can't get enough of that stuff. Everybody's selling it. Everybody's buying it, can't get enough of that stuff. Some like it weak, some like it strong. Stuff is what you want, right or wrong. Some like it weak, some like it strong. Some like it old, some like it young. 
more you get, the more you want. You can't get enough of that stuff, honey. Can't get enough of that stuff. Oh, give me a little of that stuff. I want some of that stuff from Times Square. Can't take that Bowery stuff no more. Kill two of my best friends. Everybody's selling it, everybody's buying it. You can't get enough of that stuff. Some like it weak, some like it strong. Stuff is what you want, right or wrong. Some you'll get, wish you ever had. Some is good, some is just too bad. The more you get, the more you want. You can't get enough of that stuff, I mean. You can't get enough of that stuff.